Hello friends, this is Brian Amick and welcome to another episode of Project 39. Joining us today is Alicia Isaacs. Alicia is the superintendent of Madison State Hospital. If you're like me, you may not have even realized that the state hospital is still in operation. But Alicia is here today to set the record straight on that. She's also going to tell us more about the kind of care the hospital provides and how a person goes about getting help there. And like many places today, the hospital is hiring. Alicia tells us about the employment opportunities there. So if you know anybody looking for work, be sure to share this episode with them. Let's get to it. Alicia Isaacs, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Good. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yes. um, I grew up in Jackson County, Indiana, and Orange County as well. I went to school both at Paoli and Brownstown. Um, Of course, that feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, But I I grew up in the country and did lots of um, outdoorsy type things, which has definitely carried over into my adult life. Okay. Were you a farm girl? Absolutely. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What, what, uh, crops, cattle? Um, No, animals Animals. of all sorts. Yeah? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Cool. Um, My family's always been into horses, so. Oh, Good. Okay. And uh, so after, so you say you went to school Paoli? Yeah. Yeah. My um, my mom was a school teacher and she still teaches school. So um, kind of went down there for a job and I spent most of my educational years there, but I finished mm-hmm. up at Brownstown in, in Jackson County. Okay. Um, and um, really. College after that? Yeah. Yeah. I went to college. Um Purdue University for my bachelor's in psychology. Okay. And then uh, for my master's, I went to IU for social oh, work. You finally got the master's right. Oh, Purdue, yeah. Huh? yeah, it's definitely a split household. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, so, I'm sorry, What your master's at IU was in? Social work. Social work, mm-hmm. okay. And what did you do with that degree? What are you doing now? Well, I um, after my master's, I decided I'd been in school for too long and I wanted an adventure. So, so, so you went straight into master's out of your I did. undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, so you had like what, six, seven years, six years six straight. Years of, oh, yeah. Geez. Um, so I decided what could I do and get paid for an adventure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I went to work for the federal government, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and I moved out West and lived with the Hopi Indians. Oh, the Hopi. Uh-huh. And, um, and, uh, Arizona. Arizona? Mm-hmm. Okay. Been there. Northern Arizona in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and worked for their family services Okay, out there for about a year. Yeah. So uh, it's been several years ago. My kids were younger. We went to uh, Sholo, Arizona, uh-huh. to the uh, American Indian Christian Mission, which is uh, situated like between the Apache and Navajo mm-hmm. reservations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we weren't really on. We did visit the... We, actually, we visited both reservations, uh, but we didn't stay on it. We stayed off the off the reservation. But uh, and then the Hopi, it's actually inside of the Navajo reservation. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long were you there? A, a year. A year. I had had my adventure. <laughs> yeah, I bet that's a different was, world out there. Yes. I mean, ed- entirely. I mean, you don't get the the green trees and the water and Walmart. And Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't badmouth Walmart like a lot of people oh, do. Yeah, the it's, the nearest Walmart was four hours round trip. Oh my so, goodness. Yes, I, I had had my adventure and was ready to come home, so um, I so, came so back. So what does one do on, 
I mean, what kind of services is that for, like, the Hopi Reservation or Hopi Nation? What do you do? It was the equivalent to um, the stateside Department of Child Services. Okay. But right. it was their version of that. Okay. Because they are a sovereign nation. Okay. All right. Yeah, I bet that was an eye-opener. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different world out there. So. Absolutely. Okay, so a year of that was enough. You realized <laughs> you'd had enough adventure and decided oh, boring Indiana wasn't so bad? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I came back and... Um, became a a licensed therapist and worked in outpatient therapy in the community for about eight years prior to coming to Madison State Hospital. Um, I came here as the director of social services and worked that job for about two years. And then I have been the superintendent now for almost two years. Oh, okay. So Madison State Hospital. (laughs) So... Who even knew it existed anymore? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, so many people. I was under the impression that all the state hospitals in Indiana had closed, and, and maybe I'm the only person that has that uh, misconception. But uh, I don't think I am. So, so Madison State Hospital still exists, right? We have been open since 1910 and have so never closed. Never closed. Mm-hmm. Okay, just kind of downsized a little bit. Yeah, and and I think maybe the the general misconception is there were several uh, residential facilities that got closed that were related to a different governmental agency that served um, intellectual functioning individuals. Um, Those got closed and they they became more community central rather than in one Okay. regional location okay. right. um, and so people may have gotten those facilities confused with mm-hmm. what are psychiatric hospitals okay and then I think about that same time the Department of Corrections took over some of the property right yes and, especially and here locally we um, we downsized the hospital campus and Department of Corrections came in for the women's prison um, we also share grounds with the Veterans Cemetery and the Boys and Girls Club and the Jefferson County or the City Park. Okay. Um, so, and we are actually the last thing that you see if you enter our campus. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be easy to miss us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you got the DOC facility and the Veterans Cemetery all back here, which are part of the state. But are you separate entities? Are you affiliated with the, D, the, the correction facility next door, or um, it's no. perfectly standalone? Two completely separate entities, um, not at all connected other than being state facilities. Okay. Um, do you share some services? I mean, like, uh, you, you do, I mean, you're both state functions and you're both side by side. Do you share, like, some maintenance? Uh, we do. We share um, responsibility for the grounds in our maintenance department. Um, but that might be about where it overlaps. Okay. That's it. Yeah. So you're not, uh, the state hospital isn't working with uh, any, anyone at the, de- uh, the prison, for lack of a better word? No. No, 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 no inmates are coming over here. You're not sending No, um, okay. we, uh, the, the women do take care of our grass and oh. our, some of our grounds work. But, um, nope, two different budgets, mm. two different government umbrellas. So the state hospital is still here, does still exist, even though a lot of people seem to think it doesn't, and myself. <laughs> so, so what do you do? How many patients do you have now? Um, as of today, we have 107 patients okay. here. Wow. Um, we can fit as many as 120, uh, and that's the absolute number. That 
that can fluctuate, though, based on the needs or recovery status of some of the patients. Okay. And what kind of services do you offer? Um, we offer co-occurring disorder programming, which is related to um, having a substance use um, issue along with a mental illness at the same time. Uh, we also offer transitional care programming that is centered around um, skill development and community readiness for our patients to transition into the community. And, um, of course, we offer this psychiatric treatment and all that entails for severe mental illness. Okay. So, so you talk about uh, preparing people to return to the community. So that's not the, the goal isn't to keep people here forever. The, the goal no. is to get people returned to a normal functioning lifestyle. Yeah, that, that is always the treatment goal. Uh, we are a hospital and not a residence, so it is not a forever home. Okay. Um, and anyone here, no matter how long they have been here, is still in active treatment towards their recovery. Okay, all right. And let me see, we talked earlier, you were showing me around. So you have facilities for both uh, men and women and pretty much all age ranges, right? Yes. Um, it, it is an adult-only facility, okay, so no you have to be 18, okay. yes. Um, and we do have, beyond 18, we have all age ranges, all um, genders, um, any identifying category. We, we offer treatment to humans. Okay. <laughs> so, so if someone's needing treatment or, or has a family member needing treatment... Do you just show up here at the door and you know say, hey, I need some help? Or how does, how does one go about uh, getting help here at Madison State Hospital? You know, other than whether or not we're open or closed, that's probably the next biggest misconception. Mm -hmm. um, because there are people that still believe you can roll up and drop somebody off and, and say, call me when they're ready. But unfortunately, that is not how our system works anymore. Um, People who come here for treatment are court-ordered here, um, and they have to be referred by the mental health center in the county that they live in. Um, and so they get referred to Division of Mental Health and Addictions, and then, and then they disperse who goes where for treatment kind of thing. Um, so that's how someone comes into treatment here. They, they can't just walk up and knock on the door. So it's not like, hey, I've got good insurance, I need some <laughs> help, you show up. No, it has to be, and usually through the court system. Yes, and, and it's designed that way because there are several layers of treatment available before you come to this environment. Okay. Um, our level of treatment is the most restrictive in the treatment continuum, okay. meaning you, you come here and... It is a locked facility. You don't get to choose to leave because you are court ordered. Uh, so when someone needs that level of treatment, that means that all the other opportunities that came before didn't serve them well enough to get them to where they needed to be to live independently. So they've come to kind of the last resort, the most restrictive, okay. highest um, highest intensity of treatment here. Okay. So... Uh just without getting into anyone's privacy or anything, can you can you give a, an example of? I mean, what's a typical uh, I don't know, care journey? I mean, you know, can you tell us about someone 
like say once again, not trying to get any identifying characteristics or anything, but just someone who's came here, what a typical treatment regimen looks like, how long they're here, and how they are reintroduced to the community? Sure. Um, so we get a, a, a couple different referral sources um, other than just the community. All 92 counties have a mental health resource mm -hmm. that refers them to the state hospital if that's the level of care that they need. We also get referrals from the criminal justice system. When people who have mental illnesses get entangled with the law mm -hmm. um, and then they, they go to jail, they can sometimes get evaluated whenever they're struggling to coordinate with their lawyer. So we also get referrals from the criminal justice system. So there's a couple different routes that people mm -hmm. can take to get here, and that sometimes can influence the treatment that they go through while they're here because they're here for two different reasons okay. sometimes. All right. um, but in any case, when, when someone gets here, they're admitted, they go through a quarantine process now since COVID is in our lives, um, and then they, they immediately start to get to working with their treatment team. So the treatment team consists of a psychiatrist, a psychologist, social worker, a rehab therapist, um, different layers of the nursing department. So mm -hmm. RNs, LPNs, attendants, um, <clears throat> every single person has an individualized treatment plan, um, which is basically their roadmap to recovery. Okay. Um, and they, they just work that plan and, 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 the treatment team alters it as they improve mm -hmm. or as they identify new things that need to to improve before they can be independent. Um, once someone becomes psychiatrically stable and their symptoms um, are not as disruptive to them, the, the treatment team starts to consider whether or not they're ready for our transitions programming. Okay. So then they enter into a separate program. Okay. And that transitions program, is that is that we get into like life skills? Absolutely. Okay, so now yeah. we're through like the, the treatment and now we're getting into the transition phase. So we teach people right. how to just function in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. So what's that involve? Well, um, <clears throat> the transitions program joins in concurrently with continued mental health treatment and sometimes substance use treatment at the same time. So it's an additional intervention, but it's only tacked on once someone's um, presenting symptoms are mm -hmm. subsided. Okay. So uh, the transitions program itself is an evaluation of the existing skill set and then looking at what do you need, what are your goals, what do you need to meet those goals in the community. So it does amount to living skills, laundry, cooking, cleaning, um, setting up your own schedule and being okay. kind of self-motivated okay. in that way. Uh, you did mention briefly... Uh there a minute ago uh, about quarantine due to COVID nowadays. So how did that affect your, your ability to provide care? Were you able to, I mean, did you keep the doors open? Were you still, you know, people still able to come as new patients and also leave or did you pretty much end up just having to lock everything down until we kind of got to a different place? Um, it was unexpected, I think, across mm -hmm. the United States. Yeah. Um, but I, I had stepped into this role, um, and within 45 days, it was declared a pandemic. Oh, you were treading water <laughs> fast, weren't you? Yeah, I don't even know that I had unpacked all the boxes in my office. Um, and then beyond that, the medical director, 
she had only been in her position for about six months. Yeah, wow. Um, <clears throat> of course, we weren't new to the hospital or our system, but we were new to our roles. Right. And it became apparent to us that that we're in it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's happening, yeah. um, and and we love what we do so much that we we did not want us being new to the role to be to the detriment of our patients. Okay, that's good. So we kind of looked at each other like, here we go, Um, but we're going to do it. Um, So we we took a pretty aggressive approach early on, and we we closed the doors, we put on masks, we hunkered down. um, And when we realized it was working compared to what some of the other facilities were going through, um, we just kept going. We kept going with four months solid every day for 10 and 12 hour days, we sat in one of our conference rooms and went through policies and treatments and how do we offer these different. And we would call in other directors and other direct Mm -hmm. care workers and say, give us some ideas. Tell us how to make this work under the newest constraint of COVID because every day was a development. Every day was changing. Uh, And at the end of four months, what made us kind of branch out was really, I can't look at you people anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was, it was just so overwhelming. Um, and we felt like we had finally covered enough bases that maybe we can take two hours out of this room Mm -hmm. without an issue to work on something else. And then as the months passed, that time span grew and we didn't have to sit together anymore, but, oh my goodness, the beginning was so intense. Um, but, but all that work came to fruition. Okay. You know, we ended up using it, and we still are. But we, we closed the doors. No visitors were allowed. Um, and that was kind of as, as a network with our sister hospitals as well. Uh, because we, we, in a lot of ways, mirrored the long-term care facilities, like nursing homes. Okay. Yep. That once it got into your facility, it was very difficult to stop the spread because of the nature of what we do. Yeah. Um, so we really looked at how we conducted our work so that we could stop spread once it got in. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, you know, here, it looked like things were finally t- starting to turn around, but now it looks like it's going back the other way. So uh, you did mention when I came in, you know, we're wearing masks, and, uh, and you said that you've never stopped. You, even though things kind of slacked up everywhere else, you guys still... No, and that was um, that was a local decision as well as a, a network. Uh, none of our sister hospitals stopped wearing masks. Okay. Um, here at Madison, we started wearing masks the second week of March 2020, and we have not taken them off wow. since, um, despite vaccines. And, and we actually have a really high uh, patient vaccination rate. We have 75% of our patients are vaccinated. You're doing better than the general population. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we have educated and encouraged and offered awards for mm-hmm. for becoming vaccinated because we recognize how dangerous and how quick yeah. it can become yeah so I'm doing a little research uh before i came up here today uh i was looking at your website or the fssa website and i see that they talk about this uh trauma-informed care model that's being rolled out across all the state hospitals in indiana so i've never heard that uh, phrase before so what what's a trauma-informed care model what what's that mean what's it look like 
Well, I, I think it's it's been in practice for a long time at other in other states at other facilities. Um, definitely different entities that that are human services have adopted trauma informed care before. Um, it's new to us in a shift from purely recovery model to now having trauma-informed care that we kind of wrap all of our interactions in like a blanket. So mm-hmm. we are keeping previous um, intervention models, but this is more of a way of life or a way of interacting with each other. But trauma-informed care is working from kind of a universal assumption that everyone has gone through something okay. that has tinted their lens of how they see the world and how they interact with it. Uh, And that as people that take care of people, we need to be aware of what those might be, what those things in life someone might have experienced and how they might behave differently in the world. Um, This kind of global understanding of someone can help us be more aware of what they need and, and kind of tailor our interactions to them. So what's an example of, uh, of a trauma that someone may have experienced? Well, um, we, all, we all think, when we think of trauma, most of us think of those big pillar events. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we think of all the different type of abuses that can occur, um, situational events like tragic accidents or an unexpected loss in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also mean things that are a little lower on the radar, that, that don't automatically come to mind when you think of a trauma. Um, It can be chronic stressors like poverty, um, chronic food insecurity, homelessness. Um, Those situations in themselves are stressful enough that they can affect our medical health, our medical status, but also our mental and emotional outlook on the world. Um, and, And a lot of our patients have come from experiences like that. Um, What it looks like is being more mindful that someone might have experienced a trauma and they don't don't like to be touched. Um, What may be a hand on the shoulder, like when you walk up to a crowd of someone you know and they don't see you coming, Mm -hmm. sometimes people put their hand on their shoulder to be like, hey, um, that's not necessarily trauma-informed care, although we think that that might be warm mm-hmm. and welcoming. Yeah, you're trying to show care. Right? Yeah, show absolutely. Um, it actually could be a trigger to more people than you might imagine that they're touched unexpectedly from someone they didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that can spiral into something very different than what the person walking up intended. So that, that's, how, that's a practice of trauma-informed okay. care. Um, you know, it's, it's changing your, your own lens when you see someone having a reaction in the community that you don't understand. Sometimes our internal conversation is, what's wrong with them? Right, yeah. Um, but it's changing it to, what happened to them? Yeah, what happened that's causing this Yeah, this what's happened to them reaction? for them to be having that, sometimes a meltdown that we don't understand because all right. we're seeing is the situation that's in front of us, not what's behind the curtain. Um, so it's kind of operating with that in mind. So do you have to get down to the level of knowing what the trauma was? So, so for a particular patient, we need to know 
what trauma they suffered, or is it just the awareness that they have suffered some sort of trauma, or we're under the assumption they have, and now we can just incorporate that? Or do you have to really get down to you know, what happened to this this individual? Um, no, it's helpful, but not necessary. Because if we adopt this in not just our work lives, but in our personal lives or in our interactions with a stranger in the bank, mm-hmm. um, we aren't going to know those details. But if we work from the assumption that everyone has experienced a trauma, and that's not just my definition of trauma, it's what they would say was mm-hmm. really hard for them in life. If we just walk around in our world and think, everybody's gone through something. Let's be a little softer and a little slower to judge. Um, we then the specific trauma itself isn't necessary to know. Okay. That's not the, that's not the nugget that we got to get to. No. Okay. Now, you know, when it comes to patient, a patient being in treatment, we don't always get to know those intimate details either, but we do, the more we can know, the more we can help tailor a response and that help tailor their environment so that it's not triggering or distressing for them unknowingly. Um, but we sometimes never reach a point where someone wants to talk about it and it's not necessary. Right. Okay. Uh, and it makes sense. I mean, uh, you talk about, you know, when we see someone having a breakdown, we all know that, you know, the guy that you see tailgating and honking his horn and he's not probably not so upset about how someone in front of him is driving. He's upset about, the appointment he's late for, or the interaction he had with somebody at work, or or something like that. It's 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 seldom seldom the thing that sets somebody off is the thing that uh, or that is really causing the issue, right? It seems sure. you know it, it makes sense. There's always something else going on in pre- people's lives, you know. So it makes sense that we try to figure that out uh, and incorporate that into their care. So it, it sounds like. Uh, so is, is this new? Is this a new thing in the healthcare field, in the mental health field, or is this something that's been around a while? It's It's been around um, for a little while. It's new to the state hospital system as far as adoption, okay. uh, and that's why it's kind of the newest hubbub is because um, it's, it's initiative from Division of Mental Health and Addiction that we use trauma-informed care in our interactions and in our treatment models. So it, it's it's kind of, um, it's new to us in implementation, but not new as a concept. Okay. All right. So before we started recording, uh, you were gracious enough to, to show me around some of the facilities here. And uh, I got to say, the, some of these buildings are beautiful. The one that we're in right now, the you know the administration building with the old woodwork and everything but but even going over to one of the other buildings uh i was struck by just how clean and orderly everything is and and this is a big campus so uh you you know you're not the only one doing this right so who who are some of your key staff members that uh that make this place run is anybody you'd like to call out um (laughs) you know that puts you on the spot because you're gonna forget somebody (laughs) Not to sound like it's hokey, but mm-hmm. That's all, right. all of them. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone understood their role here and how to make this machine work prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. But after our COVID response, it has become even more ingrained that this place does not work if we don't have every single one of them. Everyone here is so essential 
Um, it, it doesn't work without one of the cogs in the wheel. Um, so I, I can't, I can't pinpoint anyone because everyone played a vital part. Right. And, and it might sound, you know, like a hokey response, but seriously, just walking around here, you can tell people are, you know, they're taking pride in, in their, their buildings, their work. And, and I mean, everybody has a smile on their face and yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was nice to see. Yeah. Good. Uh, so how many people work here? Uh, we currently have 282 employees. Oh, wow. That's pretty big. Yeah. Um, we, we have the manning table for a little over 350. Okay. So, um, with that math, you can probably tell we have lots of vacancies. So you're looking to hire. Absolutely. Okay. So what, uh, what positions are you looking to fill? Um, we need attendance, which is, you know, direct care as far as taking care of patients and helping them with their living skills and, and physically taking care of them okay. sometimes. So those are called behavioral health recovery attendants, BHRAs. Uh, we need RNs. We need LPNs. Uh, I think we've got a social worker opening. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do the attendants need, uh, like, like medical training? No, um, it is an entry-level position. Okay. All that's required is a GED or a high school diploma. But um, any other health experience, uh, healthcare experience or associate's degrees are taken into consideration. And so where, if someone is interested or looking for a job, where would they go? How would they find to apply just specifically to this place or... Um, you can you can apply on uh, workforindiana.in.gov okay. is our state site, right. or you can call. Just call here at the hospital and ask to talk to Human Resources, and we can talk you through an application. Okay, um, we'll um, give you any kind of assistance that you need. Okay, can you give me a phone number I can include in the show notes? I can. Okay. Um, actually, or I you know can it. Give it out if you I got know it. it. Yeah. All right. Um, it's eight one two. Two six five seven two seven two, and they should ask for that. Will be directly to Human Resources. That's, that is HR. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they can apply. They don't have to go into some convoluted state online system to apply. It is an online application, okay. but if that if people find that really challenging, they are welcome to come in, and we have a computer set up that we can walk you through that oh, process. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. uh, that's nice. And you said there's also a website available? Yes. So. It's workforindiana.in.gov. Okay. We'll include that link also mm -hmm. in the show notes so everybody can have that. But, you know, it's it's really important. Um, and I I am part of orientation. So when mm -hmm. people get hired here, I, I meet with that class that's entering um, and talk about what it's like to work here. But it's really important that people that might be interested in working here know that it can be just a job mm -hmm. that you come here and you do your shift and you go home and you get paid after two weeks. But um, it's actually a culture that you join here and it's, it's agreeing with the mission that we have here and seeing where you fit into making that happen. Okay. How would you summarize that mission? Um, our mission is um, to safely deliver meaningful and quality and compassionate psychiatric services to our patients and their families. Okay. And um, we focus on, you know, mending the mind, supporting the spirit, healing with hope, 
Um, we have a value system that is safety, courtesy, service, and efficiency. Okay. And we talk about those things in your very first day, right after lunch. Mm-hmm. And can you get on board with this? Because it's not, it's not just a bunch of words. It, we, we really embody this here and try to live that way. We, we spend a lot of time together. Um, and we, we care for patients and sometimes become their family while they're here. So um, it can be just a job that you check the boxes on and you get compensated for that. Mm-hmm, right. But it can be, but it can be more than that. If much you, more, yeah. much more meaningful than that. Um, so you, the, you mentioned the positions you're hiring for. Are you different shifts too? Are you looking? Do you have staff on 24/7? Yes, this is a 24-hour facility. Okay. So there are um, direct care positions that are available. Day and evening, okay. night shift. So if people mm-hmm. have a pos- are in a position where they need work nights or evenings or something like that. You've got those opportunities available too. Absolutely. Okay, that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, we'll include those links and maybe people can go find out more. Now, one last question about hiring: Are you hiring? Uh, would they be direct hires to the state of Indiana, or are they through a third party? No, we, we want state employees. You're, you're, okay, these we are, do have contract okay. staff in mm-hmm. certain positions, but our preference would be to onboard you as a state employee. Okay. Um, the fringe benefits are wonderful, and yeah. uh, we really endorse that. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, we'll include all that information, and maybe people who are looking for, uh, for work can check it out. In your job as superintendent of this uh, hospital, what's the best part of your job? What's the, what excites you every day about coming to work? Um, that I, I have been one of the lucky ones to find something that I'm passionate about and that I get to get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone gets to say that, but um, I have been lucky enough to find that early in my career. Um, and I think... I, I, the best part about my job is that there's not another one that I wish I had instead. Okay. And a lot of people have to deal with, um, just doing this until I can get the one that I want, but I don't face that. So I feel very grateful. Oh, that's awesome. So, well, then we got to flip the coin. Here. So, <laughs> so what's the worst part of the job? Um, I think one of the things that I struggle with is that there's a lot of judgment that gets passed without mm-hmm. really knowing all of the details of something. You know, there are between between staff when we have all the positions filled mm-hmm. and the amount of patients that we have, there can be roughly 500 people here. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes decisions have to be made that aren't popular and judgments are passed on those decisions, yeah. right? Opinions. Um, and I can say that in 99.9% of those instances, nobody knows all of the information that they need to understand why that decision had to be made that way. Yeah. And that's tough because it's usually information you can't yeah. share. And there's usually not some grand conspiracy. No, no. Yeah, um, I and, I, and I try um, my best to be transparent about decisions or what went in to an mm-hmm. outcome. Um, but still, sometimes it's just so much information that to really give a good reason is so time-consuming. It's like, well, that, that 
took more time than just following through with the newest decision. Uh, So that's been really challenging is I think that's a I think that's a realization for a lot of people who move into leadership or management roles yeah. that uh, yeah you're never going to make everybody happy that I, I truly wish there was more benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that was passed around yeah. nothing nefarious going on we're just doing no. the best with what we got you know and just 13 years ago I started my career in mental health as an attendant. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Um, so, so you've seen absolutely all sides. Absolutely, yeah. I I have been the one to give baths or be part of a restraint or be mandated for overtime when I've got X, Y, and Z yeah. waiting for me at so home you're not to do. Anybody to do anything that you haven't already done yourself? No, and yeah. I and I understand what that feels like yeah. when all of that. It culminates into a really crappy day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I am truly grateful for our frontline staff because I get it. I think, I think we'd all be a little better off if the, with a little more uh, benefit of the doubt right mm-hmm. now. So that's good. Um, so you mentioned your 24 seven facility people working here all the time. Of course, your, your patients are here around the clock. So you're home, you wake up in the middle of the night, and the wheels start turning. What what what's the stuff that keeps you up at night? Keeps you from getting back to sleep? Hmm. Well, um, I can say I, I do feel lucky that it's not middle of the night phone calls from the hospital. Okay. Um, not because my phone is always on for those types of phone calls, but it's become such a well-oiled machine here that it doesn't ever reach my phone in the middle of the night. So I can say what doesn't wake me up is my phone. Um, but, um, my dog, my dog sometimes wakes (laughs) me up and keeps me up. Um, he's an old man and needs to go out sometimes in the middle of the night, but on the, on the hospital side of it, the things that go through my mind a year ago, I would have said COVID and kind of having that anxiety about, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to call a family and tell them their loved one has gotten COVID in my hospital. Um, So that a year ago would have been really scary and kept me up. Um, Since so many of our patients have gotten vaccinated, that's not been a worry so much. Um, What keeps me up now is how do I keep this place staffed? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And how do I keep the staff that have been so dedicated um, healthy and um, as happy as I can yeah. <laughs> keep them? Um, so constantly thinking about how can we do staff appreciation or how can we do um, things that give them a break, like from their fatigue in the workplace. Now, there are a lot of rules and laws that govern that for state employees. (laughs) So it becomes tricky um, because you can't necessarily uh, reward them monetarily um, and you can't always hold as many uh, fundraisers or different things that you want to be because the state employee system prohibits that kind of thing. So it becomes very constrained. Um, So I do rack my brain at night Mm -hmm. about what what do they need that I can do for them. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, But most recently, one thing that I'm hoping really um, so helps 
solve that for them and maybe give me some peace of mind is uh, the governor and FSSA awarded state employees that have been on board during the pandemic. They, they've gotten either $350 or $750, oh. depending on the length of time they were working during the pandemic. So, uh, and that just came down at the end of last week, I think. Oh, so I heard about that. That's good. Yes, it's, it's brand new. And that came from federal CARES Act mm-hmm. money. It didn't come out of our budget. That wasn't money that we kept squirreled away. Um, but that, that's been something that I'm hoping really reinvigorates them in their work. And that at a state level, they've, they've been very grateful yeah. for hanging on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Um, so one question I always ask everybody on this, and, and, and this one might be a little tough for you because you seem so passionate about what you're doing. But you know, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I would probably be riding my horse right now. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty outdoorsy person. Um, I ride horses and, you know, have live in the country, have dogs, cats, and um, snowmobile, mm-hmm. and go boating and camping and fishing. So I would probably be doing something outdoors, but more than likely riding my horse right now. Um, but professionally, if I weren't superintendent, I would probably have my own company that offered equestrian or equine therapy, oh, um, yeah. probably have a setting that offered like week-long therapy retreats where you could get the country experience mm-hmm. and um, have therapy sessions along with that. Okay. Now, has there been any thought given to incorporating any type of animal therapy in the, the, the care that you give here or any of the state hospitals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a couple sister hospitals that have... How, how many... Just Sorry to interrupt. How sure. many state hospitals are there in Indiana now? There are five adult and uh, one child okay. hospital. Right. Um, so there's dispersed throughout Indiana, um, but there are six of us in our network. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, that's okay. Um, and at a couple of them, there are... Um, versions of animal therapy i think cat and dog mostly okay. Small animals. yes um and that is not something that we have instituted at madison state hospital but we want to okay and uh prior to covid ever being a thing in our world that would have been on a a two or three year plan for implementation. And I can't say that it's too far off from that, but everything seems to have taken a backseat. Everybody's been pushed Yeah, but it has proven time and again in the research that it is a, a very valuable tool. And as soon as we can shift some focus away from COVID mm-hmm. um, or maybe balance it a little better, right. that's something that is in our near future. Oh, that'd be neat. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. So if people need to contact you with any other questions or need any more information about Madison State Hospital, uh, do you have a website or any, I don't know, does State Hospital have any social media accounts? Um, you, can, you can view things about our hospital through the DMHA website. Okay. Look, look for all the different hospitals, but you'll see Madison State okay. Hospital listed. I'll, I'll find a link and put it on there. Yeah. Um, we don't have any local social media. Like, I don't run any for the hospital. Okay. Um, but different agencies, like DMHA has one, that okay. if we needed anything mentioned about Madison State Hospital, we get it posted 
through the Office of Communications on that website. But if, if you're interested in anything about our facility, you're welcome to call me. Okay. Um, I, you can have my phone number. Um, my, at my office, it's 812-265-2611, and that will give you our operator, and she will find me <laughs> in the okay. hospital because I'm not always at my office phone. But, um, yeah, you're welcome to call me. You can, you can email me, and you can find that information through the DMHA site as well. Okay, appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, lastly, before we wrap up, um, so going into this conversation, was there anything that you hoped we'd cover, anything we'd get into that, uh, that we didn't get to? Um, or anything you just want to reinforce? Well, we are hiring. <laughs> we are still here. <laughs> you, you need people. Um, yeah, and, and even though it may be a misconception at the local level because you don't physically see us, mm-hmm. um, we have tried to amp up our community involvement. We've been at... Yeah, I saw um, you at the fair this year. Yes, actually. we've got a booth at the fair. We've been in the regatta parade. We carried mm-hmm. a banner, and we were Yogi Bear this okay. year. Um, they had a, a water table out front here for the firecracker race, oh. the 10K. Oh, yeah, the 10K goes through here, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so anything, we're involved with Ivy Tech here in okay. Madison. So we are trying to be more visible. We are still open. And I can tell you at the state level, we are, um, we are a main player in chronic mental illness treatment. So okay. even though you can't physically see us here in Madison, um, if you kind of go into the mental health world, um, you'll hear about us. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, Alicia. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for joining me today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Take care.